And we met Preem Palver and we met Preem Palver's wife. What what was Preem Palver's wife's name? I, I don't remember. Mrs. Palver. But she, <laughs> she, she didn't have much of a presence. Her name the, was Mama. Yeah, that's right. She And she had a couple of lines like, kind of, oh, now, dearie, like, let's go have some tea. You know, she probably had 12 PhDs and was <laughs> right on the speaker's <laughs> table. <laughs> This is the Star's End podcast, where we talk about Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, the Apple TV Plus adaptation, and other topics related to Asimov and sci-fi. I'm John. I'm Joseph. We've already read the original Foundation series, the prequels, and the robot novels together, and we've reviewed two seasons of the TV show. And I'm Dan. This season, we're going to be reading the Foundation sequels, with a couple of surprise detours on the way back to Earth. Welcome to episode three of season five of the Star's End podcast. Today we're going to talk about four more chapters of Foundation's Edge. They're called Hyperspace, Table, Seychelle, and Agent. And before we go into a recap, I have to say that these four chapters were about as Asimov-y as they get in terms of the fact that it was people sitting in rooms talking to each other. Uh, the action took place, in the case of hyperspace jumps, instantaneously between two strokes of the typewriter. And there was a, a courtroom scene. So it, it couldn't get any more classic Asimov than we got this week. I, I actually think one there's one way we could have gotten more Asimov-y, and that would have been if someone had recited the three laws. It's true, <laughs> they didn't recite the three laws. You're right. And of course, there was no plot exposition backwards since we're in the middle of the book. Right. If the previous eight chapters were the plot <laughs> exposition, so let's talk about what we what we got here. Chapter nine, hyperspace, is basically that Pellerat and Treviz are going to finally jump through hyperspace. There's a whole discussion of some of the history of hyperspace jumps, you know, and it's been we've been doing it for twenty thousand years or twenty two thousand years, however long he says. And they finally make the first jump. Pellerat's a little nervous about it, but they go ahead and make it. And Treviz then spends an entire day checking the math to make sure that the hyperspace jump went where it was supposed to. And I, I find that a little, I mean, you would think that hyperspace jumps and checking afterwards, even under their older technology, which is what he's assuming that they're that they're suffering under, that there'd be some kind of a plug it in, you know, find three stars, plug them in, and we'll calculate it pretty much instantaneously. It's as though he's having to sit there with a slide rule and drawing things on charts and, you know, making sure that his angles are correct. And, you know, that like, how could it take a whole day, even even with the previous <laughs> generation of computers in, of the future? I feel like it wouldn't take a whole day to do that right now. I I, I had this vision of him climbing up on the roof of the spaceship with <laughs> like, like a, a sextant or a something. Sextant. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Anyway, he spends a whole day and realizes that the accuracy of the jump was unbelievably incredible and that what the computer is set up to do is make multiple jumps at the same time or or as quickly in sequence so they can go thousands of light years or parsecs, whatever their unit of measurement they're using is, in almost no time. And, and one thing I've always wondered about these hyperspace jumps is why there's a limit on the distance you can go. Like supposedly they're compressing the entire universe into a single point or something like that. And yet they've, they're always quite careful about not going too far with any one jump. And I, I guess in the past, it's been that the errors are too large, that they're, you know, that they're afraid if they make too large a jump, the error will be too large and something bad can happen. But under this, with this computer, I feel like, well, okay, he's about to make 28 
jumps in sequence. Why not just jump to the end all at once? Any, any opinion on that? Uh, that's a good question. Cause uh, yeah, I was, I was pondering, you know, one of the first really nice uh, descriptions I remember of hyperspatial travel was in Heinlein's Starman Jones. And they described it in terms of, uh, of the universe being like a scarf that was crumpled up where, you know, it's a far distance on the scarf, but, but little certain bits of the um, little bits of the scarf might meet up. Right. So, you know, so you could you know travel in between them, but that doesn't seem to be the way it works in Asimov's universe. Well, anyway, so, Oh, sorry, Dan, were you about to say something? Well, I, you know, when I was imagining this, I was always thinking that somehow it had something to do with like the, the, you know, an, the possibility of an error of, uh, you know, a few, like a degree away from where your intended direction was so that the farther you go, if that angle was off, the, the greater the chance for error would be, but it's never explained. So nah, it, it's okay. Yeah. So they, they then proceed to make the 28 jumps in a row in the space of a few minutes and they get to their destination. There is one point where the computer stops to recalculate because Trevise put in the uh, the restrictions on, on the computer so tightly that it was eventually going to get to a point where it had to recalculate. But the whole thing just takes a few minutes and they're basically halfway across the galaxy in a few minutes, which is a huge, uh, it's a huge technological leap that this can be done. And they have arrived at uh, the planet Seychelles, which they're going to visit. And it it takes still takes a couple of days because one of the one technological factor that they haven't overcome is that if you jump too close to a large body, uh, you increase the chances of error. So they have to they can only jump to within a certain distance of a planet or a star, and then they have to do the rest of it under conventional thrust. So or or in this case under gravitic thrust, which is itself also intended to be a uh, a big yeah. technological breakthrough. So yeah, they're gonna, well, there's going to be some time. That said, at some point, wasn't there a reference to a micro jump and the the the, the planet Seychelles like leaping up into it being a disc as they approached? I after? mean, even so, they're they still have some time before they yes, which allows us to switch to the next chapter, <laughs> which is table the courtroom scene uh, where where Speaker Gendebal is going to be put on trial for impeachment. Um, and in the entire history of the Second Foundation, according to what we we read here, there have only been two impeachments and there have been no removals from the speaker's table. But Gendebal is facing what looks like certain conviction and removal from the table. And he's thinking about that and how much he wouldn't like to go back to being a normal Second Foundationer, that he, he does like the power and privilege of being a speaker. Um, he's also been very anxious to get this thing underway. He, he figures he's got his defense and he wants to present it and they're wasting time, even even waiting a couple of days, which is what, what happens. And as it turns out, he does have a pretty robust defense. And the main two points of the defense are one, that all references to Earth have been removed from the library. And they spend a lot of time trying to figure out how that could possibly have happened. One of the speakers says something about how under Cleon II, there was a kind of a attempt to erase past history. And Gendebal says, sure, but we were already in control of the library at the time of Cleon II. So are we suggesting that a second foundationer did it? Or are you suggesting that I did it? And, you know, everyone agrees that he couldn't have done it without someone knowing. And, you know, his own, his conclusion is that some outside force, that the, the, the second foundationer under the influence of an outside force would have been responsible. And so, you know, they're all pretty shocked by this, but it doesn't really change anything. And Speaker Delarmy wants to immediately have a vote. And he says, wait a minute, my defense isn't finished yet. And he brings in uh, Suranovi and shows the rest of the speaker's table the incredibly subtle change that's been made to her mind. And, you know, at first, Delarmy doesn't want to believe it. She wants to accuse Gendabal of doing it. And he's like, you're accusing me of doing that? You think I can do that? If I could do that, you know, <laughs> this whole thing wouldn't, wouldn't even be necessary because no second foundationer has the ability to make that subtle a change. So he's going to win the impeachment, but Delarmy is not finished with him yet because she suggests that he take Novi with him out on a trip to go because they they decide he's going to go 
well, he didn't even really want to go at all, but you know, he agrees to go and um, he agrees to go and, fi and find Trevise because they, he, he thinks it's very significant that Trevise is going somewhere other than Trantor and that he's looking for Earth at the same time that all references from Earth have been removed from the library. And he knows that Trevise has this technological marvel of a ship that has crossed an enormous amount of space in an extremely short period of time. So Delarmi, who is not done, just says, well, why don't you take the, the Hamish woman with you? And that way, you know, like Preem Palver, who was who went with his wife, posing as a farmer, you can pose as a, a Hamish trader. And he he's somewhat nonplussed by it. But then he says, you know what, that's a great idea, because I can check her mind all the time. And if there's any of these, what they're calling the anti-mules, who are the, the people that are, are uh, supposedly interfering with things, if they interfere, I'll be able to detect it in her mind sooner than in my own mind. So that's a great idea. So I'll do it. Uh, he, he's still not all that excited about going off into space. But another very significant thing that happens is that Delarmi kind of rides roughshod over the first speaker. And she's basically taking over and he gets angry. And in his anger, he announces that when Gendabal comes back successfully, which he's sure he's going to do from his mission, that he, the first speaker, is going to retire and that Speaker Gendabal is going to be named first speaker. Uh, I, I kind of got the order of things a little. That happened before the, you know, uh, Delarmi telling, uh, uh, trying to get a, a Novi to go out with uh, with Gendabal. But anyway, that's pretty significant, the whole question of the succession which has now seemingly been resolved in Gendabal's favor, although there's a lot of time things can happen. And Delarmi is disappointed, but she's still plotting because she's a plotter. And then we go back to uh, Trevise and and Pellerot arriving on Seychelles. And this was a very strange chapter because there's sort of like a run-in with the customs official who's maybe asking for a bribe, but Trevise doesn't pay him one. And there's a whole question where they should land gravitically or follow the radio beacon in. And they decide to be polite and follow the radio beacon in. And then, you know, there's the whole thing about what they're doing with the ship while they're there. Well, it's going to stay in port. And it's going to be like our hotel room, which we've seen before, by the way, in, uh, in uh, Foundation hundreds of years ago, back on Calgan. Anyway, um, and they're deciding what to do. They're looking at the streets. They're, they're, there's the accent. Nothing really happens. It's just a little bit of a travelogue. And there's a conversation between Pellerat and Therese, of course, who are, you know, they spend a part of the chapter in a taxi. And so there's just a little bit of a, a travelogue about Seychelles that apparently the, the, the system, the planet, and the city are all called Seychelles, which I guess is convenient. And they decide to go to the visitor center to try to find, because they're, they're, they don't really know what they're looking for. Trevise just has a hunch that they should be looking for Earth here. They should be asking the locals or something. And they walk into the visitor center and who should they run into? Munley Kampor, the guy who ratted out Trevise. And that's, that's the end of that chapter. I don't really know what to say about that chapter other than what I've already said. I guess it's color, I, I guess. Yeah, I, I think Asimov was being paid by the word. Um, <laughs> I, I I can say that um, if you are intending to do scholarly research, the way you go about it is not by going to the local tourist visitor center no. and, and asking <laughs> where's, where's a good library. Um, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose. But, but I'll, I'll, I'll just forgive asma for that one well maybe they were the under under the influence of something when they went there who knows drugs <laughs> or something um so the final chapter that we read is agent which is really broken up into two parts the first part is the conversation between kampor and trevis and pellerat uh, trevis is in no mood to forgive kampor although kampor wants to be forgiven and he has a bunch of excuses as to why he did what he did none of them really all that convincing either to trevis or to us his explanation for how he got there is bizarre how did he follow trevis through 29 consecutive hyperspace jumps and he says, well, I was a champion hyperspace tracker. And even Trevise is like, yeah, sure, to go one jump 
you know, and I said, well, well, you know, I have the same kind of ship you have. I have the same kind of computer you have. So, you know, that explains it. And, and Treviz is is clearly not buying it. At one point, Treviz gets up and goes and looks out, looks out the window during the conversation, which there is a reason for that. And Kampor is first he's telling him why he felt that he had to uh, he had to rat him out. And, and then he says, you know, he tells him why he's warning him that he's being followed, uh, which, again, that seemed like a strange motivation. You know, why, why are you doing this? Oh, because I care so much about you. Like, <laughs> yeah, Treviz is, uh, for once, I'm on Treviz's side. He's he's really not getting good explanations from from Kampor. And somehow the concept of Earth comes up. And Kampor apparently has heard a lot about Earth. Um, he says that it's in his family's tradition, you know, that he grew up in the Sirius sector on a planet called Kamporalon, which is where his name comes from, Kampor. And that Earth, he tells them the story about how Earth used to be a planet, but is now radioactive. And we we bring in, um, is it Pebble in the Sky or Stars Like Dust? I uh, Pebble in the Sky. Yeah, yeah. So. he brings in basically the names of char one, one character, Bell Arverdan, the archaeologist from that story. Um, and the story basically tracks that book uh, where, where Earth is for some reason radioactive. He even talks about the synapsifier, which is the brain enhancing device that the Earth people have, have built and is kind of central to that story. Uh, and at this point, that story is many thousands of years old. But he tells them that there's no point in searching for Earth because it's completely radioactive and nobody lives there anymore. And Pellerat gets kind of excited and he asks him about the satellite. He wants to know about the moon, but Kampor doesn't have any information about it. And Kampor leaves and Treviz tells Pellerat that he's figured out some things. And at first they go to dinner and there's sort of a description of the dinner. He wants to talk to Pellerat somewhere where there's there are a few people. I don't know. Anyway, um, you know, he basically he tells Pellerat that he suspects that Kampor is an agent of the Second Foundation because of the way that he followed them through hyperspace and because this excuse for why the streets were so empty, that it's some kind of a holiday, seems pretty thin. Like they ask a waiter about it and he says, oh, yeah, it's meditation day. But like, you know, that's for country bumpkins. That's not for city people like a sophisticated city people like us. And then, in fact, the streets weren't empty, and that and and Treviz has concluded that Kampor was using his second foundation mental powers to keep people away from them so they could talk. He thinks that Kampor knew where they were going because he used his second foundation mental powers to read his mind. It's not clear to me that he could really do that from through space, but okay. And um and Treviz says, if he wants us to leave the planet and go somewhere else, either to Trantor or to Comporalon, that's good enough reason for me not to go. I'm staying here. And there's, as usual, there's this whole conversation about, well, what if your mind's being controlled? Well, what if your mind's being controlled? <laughs> you know, what if the control of your mind is controlling the other mind? You know, like, whatever. Treviz says, I'm not going anywhere and neither are you because you need me to fly the ship. So we're staying here on Seychelles. And then we get the conversation well we get the first we get a little internal monologue about Kampor, where we find out that he is in fact an agent of the second foundation he has some mentalic powers though they are not of the level of a gendabal but they are of a level that he can contact gendabal across vast distances and have a conversation with him about trevise which is exactly what happens uh, gendabal is in the ship on his way to seychelles with novi and he gets this call from Kampor and they talk about the situation and um, what to do about it. But we, we definitely get that this past history of Kampor is that he is, he has been a second foundation agent for a long time and that his hyperspace tracking was something that he was able to do because he had these mental powers and, you know, that helped him advance his political career and, um, you know, but he is definitely of the lowest class of second foundation citizens. In fact, they wouldn't have even recruited him except he wasn't born on Terminus, which is why they recruited, did not recruit Treviz, because they never recruit on Terminus because of the past experience they had of being, you know, having to sacrifice people when they were found out. 
Kampor was born in the serious sector, so he's not a he's not a terminus citizen. Well, he's a terminus citizen, but he's not he's not a native terminusian. Termini, terminin. I don't know. I think it was Harry <laughs> Seldon called the people of Terminus Termini. Anyway, how about Terminator? Terminators. He's not a Terminator, <laughs> so he's been recruited by the Second Foundation, and he is going to wait for Gendabal and Novi to arrive. And the final, sort of the coda of the chapter, is how fond Gendabal is becoming of of Novi, and how you know he's sort of bothers him, but it's like, well, there's nothing wrong with that, and. He realizes he never told Kampor about it. And I was like, well, why should I tell Kampor about it? It's fine. It's all fine. Everything's fine. And the chapter more or less ends at that point. So, you know, a couple of our protagonists are heading towards each other at this point. Any thoughts on the on this section? Sounds like no. <laughs> yeah. I got several. It's... I have to admit, the, the thing that I got hung up on for a while is a comment that um, Pellerat made where they, they jumped into the galaxy and he's like, well, where's the galaxy? I can't see the galaxy. The Milky Way, yeah. Yeah, the Milky Way. And so, oh, it's the Milky Way. It's all around us. But I like started started trying to figure out what the galaxy would look like from Terminus. And as near as I could figure with just my back of the envelope calculations, it's going to look a lot like the Milky Way. It's going to, you know, because they're at the edge of the galaxy, right? They're, you know, it, it'll basically cover close to 180 degrees. You're not going to think about that as a single object. Yeah. It could be that they're in a particularly sparse area. Although well, I guess that wouldn't, or far away from the galactic arm. I mean, obviously what we see when we look at the galaxy is the spiral arm and it, and it looks like a cloud. Maybe if they're significantly above the galactic plane. Mm, that shouldn't really matter. Joseph's probably right. Yeah, yeah. I, what they would probably so. see would be actually kind of very few individual stars. Yeah. But they probably would see something like the Milky Way. Yeah. By the way, did you know that the word galaxy actually does come from the same origin as Milky Way? Because the, 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 the word lack is in there, which is, which is ah. milk. A galaxy is actually, it's not like we made up the word Milky Way despite the name galaxy milky way comes from the name galaxy interesting a little tidbit there i know you you, you love those little imagine pieces. me with one of those head exploding emojis <laughs> okay fair, <laughs> fair enough fair enough i'm googling it right now <laughs> um no you you will this time i'm going to be right but I'm, I'm not i'm not thinking you're wrong i'm just i want more information okay um, there's plenty out there cool I think I'll take the. I don't think I'll take podcast time up with it. Fair enough. It it did seem like this section of four chapters was kind of a. Uh, it was kind of a breather, you know. I mean, I, I it felt like not a lot actually happens, but a lot of things are getting set up here. Okay, so I I agree with that, with the exception of the trial scene. Like to me, that that has. Um, I mean, with proviso that nothing really happens, <laughs> but 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 um, it did seem to be like a moment of high drama. It it was. He loves he loves him a good trial scene, and yeah. I actually did think that he did. A, I I would agree with you. I think he did a really really good job because, like for example, he makes a big deal about how there is no references to earth and how Trevise is looking for earth now. Mm -hmm. And it kind of sucks you in and you're like, wow, you, well, he's right. That's really important. And then Delarmy goes, well, who cares? Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Let's vote and, con and convict this guy anyway. And you're kind of, it's like a record player scratch sound comes up and you're like, well, you know, she's right. It, it, it doesn't really save him. And then he has to come up with the second thing, which really does save him the, right. the manipulation of, of uh, Novi's mind. But um, but he really he really kind of led me at least pretty much exactly where he wanted me to go. Mm -hmm. So he did a very good job there. Just because nothing happens doesn't mean he didn't do a good job. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was I, I was pondering like the perfect setting for an Asimovian you know kind of exchange, and I think a parliament might even be better than a courtroom. Right. This might be, you know, a quintess this might be the quintessential setting for Asimovian discourse. 
I wonder, did he ever do a like a, a legislature of some kind? Well, other than this, I don't know. But this, I mean, this is, is a small one because it's only it 12. is a small one, but still. I mean, technically, the opening scene, the opening chapter, I guess, was the the terminus legislature, or at least some like council. Well, and there is a scene in like, the yeah, there's a scene yeah. in the legislature, but only about two people, two or three people yeah, ever say it, anything. It, it was it was it was muted. It was just like Trevise standing up and waving his arms and shouting about conspiracy <laughs> theories, and then the Mayor Brano putting him under arrest. <laughs> And even at the speaker's table, <laughs> I, I think we get, so we know we've got, we've got Shandis, who's the first speaker and mm -hmm. Delarmy and Gendabal. And I think there's only one other speaker of the, of the remaining yeah. nine who was even That's named. True. That's, That's true. true. Yes. For speakers, they, they don't do a lot of speaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they really could have saved the line. Not even the Larmy or Gendabel would would it was would interrupt the first speaker if the first speaker was standing. <laughs> I do like the fact that he uh, he differentiates between the way Delarmy calls Gendabal a speaker with the lowercase s mm -hmm. and the way Shandis calls him speaker with the uppercase s. Yes. And that you can hear it. And I, I'm a firm believer that you, you really can hear those things in the tone or in the presentation. So I, I liked that. It's also a very Terry Pratchett thing to say. Mm. And I'm a big Terry Pratchett fan. As maybe I've mentioned once or twice before. I think I've heard that. Yeah. You might have. You might have. Yes. It's possible. Yeah. I one of the things that I was sort of pondering is like the, um, <laughs> you know, the the starting on, on Terminus, there's, this, the, you know, there, there's this discussion about the second foundation that the second foundation is, is not out there. And like, well, you know, we can't just assume they're going to be altruists. They're going to be assholes and they're going to come in and they're going to take over when we get everything set up. And then the, uh, you know, Delarmy tries to make that same point in, in the council um, about the anti-mules. It's like, well, the, they want to help the plan. Why should we be worried about them? And, oh, well, you know, we can't assume that they're cosmic altruists. You know, I mean, it's, ex it's, it's the exactly parallel situation. Yeah. But but I'm like, I'm like thinking the the core of this thing is harry selden who has nothing to gain and he you know sets up this these foundations in order to you know basically benefit the galaxy i mean it is the it is the quintessential the the, the quintessential planting a tree that you're never going to get to sit under and enjoy the shade that's true but he also knows that because of his mathematics he knows that the first foundation is going to become corrupt and and it's going to you know he he's got it all plotted out and one assumes that he would have known how the second foundation was going to develop as well although that's a little bit harder but that it would develop into this kind of backbiting sort of uh, uh power everybody everybody jockeying for power kind of place i i don't know i mean i i think it is the logical conclusion that that would happen maybe it wasn't what asimov uh, what, what selden might have intended but it's certainly something asimov sees Oh yeah, well, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that 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 Selden didn't necessarily know what was going going on, but you know they they just dismiss this out of hand, and yet there's this huge example right. that is at the core of everything that they believe in and everything that they're doing. Well, I I mean I think it is significant that that they are incapable of seeing any other way of yeah. thinking. Yeah, well, I mean it is, and I think I mentioned this before, but it is kind of weird to me that. Uh, you know the second foundation is just yeah as you put it a bunch of backbiting you know how are they not better how are they not you know because i mean they they study human interactions and they understand how to how to manipulate human interactions and, and and theoretically bring you know bring about positivity well i i think it it goes to something that we've talked about before which is asimov's tendency to interrogate the things that he's written many years ago like the three laws the way he's constantly, constantly trying to say, well, what are the implications of this? What could go wrong? What what would really happen? And I think that he's doing the same thing here. Yeah. That he is saying, well, imagine that we did set something up like this. You know, where would it go? And, you know, he kind of takes it to the uh, ultimate ends of the of, uh, of academia, I think, you know, where it's, it's, it's kind <laughs> of this, you know, they are still academics and they, and they, they, they really just... I mean, I, I think it's just a result of him kind of looking at it and saying, well, 
people being people, even people with mentalic powers, this is what I think would happen. And it's hard to argue that he's wrong. Yeah. No, fair enough. Well, you, you, you'd like to think that we would make some progress in 12,000 years. You'd like to think that, but you, you, you have to suspect that maybe we wouldn't. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, we are, you know, backsliding so damn fast as, as, a, as, a, as a, a race right now. It's just not even funny. Yeah. And by race, I mean the human race, just to be clear. It's easy to be cynical. It really is. It really is. People make it easy for you to be cynical because of their behavior. Yeah. On, on some level, I was pondering if this was because now he's writing in the 80s and, you know, there was that whole second wave of, of, of British authors that, you know, got me more realistic and got more got more into, into psychology and whatnot, got, you know, much more, um, you know, much more gritty. I was wondering if that was something I wonder if that had any influence, although I don't really see it. I mean, I, I don't know off the top of my head how Asimov felt about Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure he was not a fan. But, you know, he's writing right in the middle of that Reagan yep. era. It's easy to look back on it now and say that Reagan was the beginning of the reversal of a lot of the countries moved leftward. Oh, a yeah. Lot of social programs. But that is what was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, he was trying to break down the New Deal. I mean, he was the first president to really try to do that and although it was his successors who mostly did it uh you know there was no question that you know the like like for example i mean i always i always go back in the 1970s when i was a stamp collector there was a commemorative stamp for collective bargaining you know, celebrating collective bargaining awesome and i think that first of all it would be impossible for the post office to put out a stamp like that today mm-hmm. but also reagan was viciously anti-union, as you might recall from oh, him yeah. firing all the air traffic control. Oh, 100%, yeah. When they tried to go on strike. Yeah. And there was a real wave of anti-union sentiment that started in that era. Anyway, the, the, my point is that maybe Asimov was reacting to the reality that was going on around him. Yeah. Could be. I mean, he was older and maybe he was a little more cynical himself, but still, all of this was happening. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember directly him referencing Star Wars, and how terrible of how terrible of an idea that was, yeah, I, yeah. Basically, born around the, he he went into a, a, a TV studio to be interviewed, you know, by satellite, and it took them twenty minutes to set it up or something. And he's like, you know, come on, we're going to be able to shoot down missiles. We can't oh, that's Star up, Wars. We, yeah, yeah, we can't, oh, we yeah, can't even set up a phone call. Yeah, sorry, that's Star Wars, the metaphorical Star Wars, not the movie. Right. No, that was a terrible idea. And by the way, we knew it at the time because I remember, so I was, I was studying computer engineering and computer science starting in 1982. Mm -hmm. And there was a, and I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before, there was a big building at Carnegie Mellon called, which was built for the strategic defense initiative, which is the official name of Star Wars. And in our computer science classes, we talked about what would be required to build a program of that size. And there was, let us say, a great deal of skepticism. You know, there was a there was a battle management system that the Navy was using, which, you know, the first time they tested it, and this was 5 million lines of code. And the, and the, the first time they tested it, it, it had like a 10% or 5% success rate. And once they were able to test it, they were able to improve the success rate. But they never got the success rate as high as Star Wars would have had to be on its first try because you don't get a second try. You don't get to test Star Wars. And it would have been, they were estimating at the time it would be nine times as large as this other battle management system. Probably in the end, it would have been a lot more. And they're using technologies and, you know, having to look, use satellites to look through nuclear explosions. Yeah, the whole thing was, we, we knew it, we knew it in 1982 or 1984 or whenever, whenever we looked at it. It was known from the beginning that it was never going to yeah. work, and yet that was the that was the focus of the first nine months of the Bush administration strategically, which is just insane. Anyway, so so maybe that all contributed to Asimov's attitude here about the second foundation, which I it, it really looks like Asimov on reconsidering the second foundation thought yeah, that's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's really not going to work out the way we hoped. 
And certainly there's no altruism there, right? They're, they are, the, as you said, the reason they're doing what they're doing is because they want to establish a second empire under their control. Mm-hmm. And that's... Well, there, there's no altruism. And, and you know, they, they talk about Novi like an object, like an inanimate object. I mean, Delarmi actually says during the trial, why would we want to hear from a Hamish woman? Those people right. have no opinions. They don't exist. Right. Yeah. That was... Which, <laughs> I mean, it's intended to make Delarmi look bad and right. Gendabal yeah. leaps on it. But yeah. still, you can see how it's a common attitude at the Second yeah. Foundation. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's not that much better. I, oh, I can use her like a canary in the coal mine. It's <laughs> basically what that, that, that whole scene, you know, when he's trying to get one up Delarmi. Oh, well, yeah. you know. Yeah, I can just use her in this way, whether she, you know, wants it or not. Yeah. You know, um, at least one thing that I I do like about this, and I think we get some of this in these chapters somewhere and, and more later on, is that um, Gendabal does at times kind of say, you know, like, he's examining his own mind for his, you know, to be ruthlessly honest with himself. And he finds out, you know, actually he's not just using her as the canary and that he, he kind of likes her, right? He, 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 does, he yeah. fancies her. He does yeah. fancy her. He's sweet. Yeah, her. yeah exactly. <laughs> and he is, I mean, I guess it's meant to show how highly trained his mind is that he has to constantly be interrogating his own yeah. motivations. He's still an arrogant jerk but he yeah kind of knows that yeah <laughs> but delarmi's worse i guess that's what we're being shown here is that delarmi's mm-hmm. actually even worse there's still the kind of backwards sort of attitude like well you know they're thinking about well why would there be a woman on this trip and you know sort of well palver had his wife on the trip and that made him look more authentic so anyone who sees that you have a woman with you will will think you know well it's either your wife or it's you know your paramour or whatever whatever word you want to use but like at no point does it occur to anyone to think well you know maybe it's a two-person mission where there's a woman there because she's the best person for the job right like that that, that's no one even remotely think even though there are women on the on the speaker's council and mayor brano is a woman mm-hmm. even so asimov is still kind of like his, his characters are unable to conceive of just a random woman being worth having on a on a mission like this yeah the academic society of uh the second foundation ha- does not have a diversity equity and inclusion office <laughs> apparently not <laughs> it does seem like 12 chapters in Things are really just getting started. Yes. That they have not actually started. And in fact, all of the chess pieces, spoiler alert, are not yet on the board. Yeah. But the ones that we have are mm-hmm. in the process of moving towards each other. They are. Yeah. They are. That's yeah. true. I mean, but that, it's that 12 is... chapters in and they're in the process of moving towards each other. That's true. But the, I mean, that 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 seems to be the 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 output of this this these four chapters. Yeah. And again not to spoil too much but there's you know when you boil this book down there's really only one thing that happens and the rest of the book is setting up the pieces to get in position for that one thing yeah uh it's you know it's a long book he's taking his time it you know there is that payoff like i i really when we eventually get there and i think joseph maybe you don't remember what what direction this is all going in exactly i don't well i don't exactly know so so that's fine so we won't spoil it any but it you know um for me it's enough of a payoff to justify the kind of leisurely saunter toward toward that thing that happens you know but i hear you i hear you and of course for us asimov starved people of the 1980s yeah we would have taken an even longer book right yes but I'm reminded of something I often think. Like there was a there was a movie I saw where this guy's cell phone, he gets a new cell phone. It's a little bit like her, where you know the main character yeah, gets a new operating right. system and he falls in love with it. Well, this guy gets a new cell phone and it like takes over his life and it's pretty much sentient. And some funny things happen and it's amusing, but it's one of those things where I go, this could have been a Saturday Night Live skit and it would have been funny. 
but it didn't need to be an hour and a half or two hour long however long it was movie and and i'm, I'm sort of reminded of that here where it's like well did we really need all of this or could this have been a short story i, I don't know i mean you know easy for me to second guess all these years later yeah i was i was uh reading a thing today where he claimed that that double day forced forced a um forced an advance on him forced an advance what <laughs> he said he didn't want an advance right because then if he, if, if he has an advance he feels beholden he can't do whatever the hell he wanted to and they forced an advance of fifty thousand dollars on he's like no that's way too much and yet he took it um yeah but he insisted i, I think they broke it up into two pieces he yeah he um and yeah, insisted that he didn't want anything until he told them. Until he told them that he was working on the novel, and they're like, "Oh no, no, no! You're not, you're not going to pull that again." <laughs> this sounds like very like some kind of mob uh, racket, like you know, like the editors from Doubleday, like like uh, named Spike or something, are are, are are like you know coming over to his his uh, home office and like yeah. Yeah, smashing yeah, you... his typewriter with a baseball bat. You have no idea. They're a rough crowd. Uh -huh. <laughs> I have the feeling that Asimov seems to me like the kind of person who maybe enjoyed the whole pursuit thing, you know, that he loved that they were coming to him yeah. and begging him yeah. to do this. Yes, I can see and that. And that he wouldn't have done it, I don't think, until he was damn good and ready to do it, which is why it took him 30 something years yep. to write another foundation book. So maybe... Maybe he protesteth too much, or oh yeah, uh, that, that would not that would not surprise me at all. And of course, conveniently, we can't ask him because he yes. he died so many years ago, <laughs> while leaving all of these questions unanswered. <laughs> yeah, there there was another reference in there. We said something about just you know giving them something very long that would that would that would bore everybody, and 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 they're like, oh no no, we're prepared for a long book. <laughs> and, and i think that we as the reading audience were also prepared for a long book mm -hmm. and probably as i said we, we probably would have not minded if it was longer no i would because if there's one thing about this book that's definitely incontrovertible it is an asimov book yes you know you read this book and you are not disappointed you see all the all of the, the the touch points that you remember so well from Asimov. So, you know, in that sense, it's very satisfying when you when you read it in in the eighties. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. It's got the Asimov stand-ins. It's got the courtroom scene. It's got the conversations between people. Very <laughs> Pellerat and Treviz are in very uh, close quarters. A lot of this book because they're and, inside a spaceship. And so much talking. <laughs> And, and don't don't forget the character names that look like they came out of an anagram generator. Yeah. Oh yeah. Weird. Yeah. There was there was there was some reference. I forget it, what what it was exactly, but it was very funny the way he he he, he talked about the uh, Seychellian names. Or yeah, when when they were with the um, um the, the they seem distinctly South Asian to me. Yeah, but it might be. Yeah, I agree. And actually, let me ask you this like when i read this i just i can't dissociate this seychelle from the actual nation of the okay. seychelles like and i i keep imagining this planet as like a kind of a tropical island <laughs> um did did either of you have that issue in well there's definitely the idea that the seychelles i believe were colonized at some point by india and so to have seychellians with indian names is not surprising except of course this isn't the seychelles this is the future yeah and this is the planet <laughs> you know so like 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 larry niven and jerry purnell love to have planets that were entirely populated by one whether an ethnic group or one geographic area so yeah. you had like there was an arab planet which was called levant there was there there was the Irish planet that was right next to the Scottish planet, and the two of them didn't go along very well. <laughs> Asimov does less of that, but this seems like that yeah. kind of thing where you go, okay, I can see how uh, settlers from Earth, from the Seychelles, ultimately went to this place and called it Seychelles as a reminder, yeah. and 
Yeah, it's it's a it's thin. It's real thin. <laughs> I didn't imagine it as tropical because he doesn't really describe it as tropical. Yeah. Hmm. We have to wait for the next book to get the tropical planet. Yes. And and, and yeah, they, they don't even see green until they're well down in their orbit. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's kind of science fiction writer shortcut. Like let's have a whole planet full of this kind of person. As long as we're on this kick about the the characteristics of Seychelles, why do you think he spent so much time talking about how planets stink differently? I was um, I was wondering that. <laughs> like, did that go? With, was was that there for any reason at all? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not I am not well traveled. Is that a is that a, a characteristic of other countries? I mean, I've been to Canada. I I mean, not really. Like, if no, not really. It like you know sometimes if if you go someplace that has a lot of forest fires raging, you're going to smell that when you land. But otherwise I don't, I don't think so. It's, it's weird. Um, I seem to recall that he's mentioned this before or other writers have mentioned it before, but it might be just that I've read this book more than once and it, and it stands out. Yeah. But I seem to recall other writers writing, particularly about space travel, where you are in a controlled environment where everything's filtered out of the air, and then you get back to a planet, open the door, and oh my god, it smells horrible. Yeah. But that might just be this book. I, I'm not sure. It that's was weird, but again, that's also very Asimovian to, to, to just decide to talk about something Really ra random, <laughs> really random, and it gives color. It gives color, and it yeah. humanizes the people. But it's also like, why am I spending so much time reading about this? <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I mean that 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 fits in. A, a thing that I pondered. We, we you know, remember the scene where Travis is is kind of apologizing to to, to Pellerat because even though he doesn't think that they're going to blow up, you know, he's, he's he has this little conversation. Oh, you know, but. You know, please forgive me in advance. Yeah, yeah. Please forgive me in advance because if you know, if if people keep, if people do this this thing uh, that has a bad low probability outcome, that bad low probability outcome is going to happen eventually, and that's you know, probably true. But um, I don't know. I wonder if some of that was channeling his his uncomfort with travel. It's very possible. I mean, Pellerat certainly is a person who in a time when everyone travels has never been off planet. And even though he knows that the hyper jump is going to be all but unnoticeable, he's still worried about it. That could very much be kind of Asimov's fear of flying type of thing. And just reluctance to leave the house. Yeah. So I, I wonder if this, cause I, you know, I don't remember certainly the, the, you know, post break books have a lot of travel log to them. And I mean, maybe he had settled into the point where, you know, and, and, and probably in his younger days, he was more apt to run around and travel and whatnot. And, but now he's, you know, been sitting at his typewriter and been pounding away for 30 years. It's possible. I mean, although I did see him at a public appearance, Dan saw him at a public appearance. It's true mm -hmm. that they were not actually that far apart. Those two public appearances, <laughs> they, were, they were both, I mean, mine was in Northern New Jersey and yours was nearby. But uh, it's possible. And, you know, I mean, Asimov certainly was not reluctant to draw on his own experiences and yep. ways of thinking, even with characters who are not necessarily Asimov stand-ins. And I don't think that Pellerat really was an Asimov stand-in. Although, maybe a little bit. Like, Pellerat does a lot of this kind of research through interlibrary loans from his house, you know. Mm. And you kind of get the feeling that Asimov, in writing all of that nonfiction stuff, probably was doing a lot of the same thing. You know, he wasn't really mm -hmm. traveling to do research on, uh, on on the Bible or on Shakespeare or whatever else he, you know, all of the many Asimov ons. He he kind of probably just went to the New York Public Library yep. and and you know did interlibrary loans and 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 so in that in that way maybe that part of Pellerat comes from Asimov. Mm -hmm. Yeah that could be was that um what was the last book we did? Was it Robots and Empire? And 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 one of our one of the books that we read by him, it seemed like there was an homage to Interlibrary Loan, which I thought was kind of hilarious. Yeah, but I'm sure he used it a lot. I'm sure oh, yeah. he was. I'm sure he was well known to the librarians. Well, and, uh, and let's be honest, Interlibrary Loan is awesome. 
Oh yeah. It's not an encyclopedia or anything. <laughs> but it's, it's, even, it's even better now because you can do so much of it electronically. Yes. I mean, Asimov mostly in creating characters, mostly drew on Asimov. Mm -hmm. We know that. So there we are for these four chapters. They've, they've advanced the story. They, they, they have introduced new concepts and new topics. The, you know, the, the multiple hyperdrive, more information about earth, a lot of kind of close look at the second foundation, which even in the book, second foundation, we didn't get a real close look at the second foundation. Mm, true. Mm -hmm. And so we've gotten a little closer look here at a, yeah. a conception of the second foundation. Yeah. In the book, second foundation, I think we barely met the people who were all going to sacrifice themselves. No, I don't think we, we met like one of them. Yeah. Hellas Anthor. Yep, that's true. And we met Preem Palver, and we met Preem Palver's wife. What What was Preem Palver's wife's name? I I don't remember. Mrs. Palver. <laughs> she, she didn't have much of a presence. Her name that. was Mama. Yeah, that's right. She and she had a couple of lines like, kind of, oh now, dearie, like let's go have some tea. You know, she probably had 12 PhDs and was <laughs> right on the speaker's <laughs> table. <laughs> but someone has to carry the chickens through the through the spaceport. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we ever got a name other than Mama. Uh, we know that Preem Palver's right. face was round and ruddy, but we, I don't think we ever got a name <laughs> for Mrs. Preem Palver. So we proceed along. Indeed. Uh, we'll, we have another four chapters next week as as events get closer and closer to uh, culminating in some kind of a nexus. What have we got next week? We've, so we, we've got eight more chapters of this book. So next week will be University, forward with an exclamation point, Gaia S, and Convergence. So we have that to look forward to. All right. Well, and then... Yeah, the book better get going if we've only got... I know, it really better. Yeah, we're, we are officially past the halfway point for sure. Well, right, we're 12 out of 20, so yep. that's past the halfway point. See that? We can still do math here. Yes. Especially Joseph. <laughs> well, have we left anything out? Is there anything in your notes that you wanted to get to that we've skipped over? I think, uh, I think that's it. Lines here. Yeah. Yeah, I think I hit... I think I hit it all. All right then. Well, why don't we say goodnight and we will see see everybody again in two weeks. All right. Awesome. All right. Good night. Good night. That's all for another episode of Star's End, recorded entirely on an Earth so far mostly free of radiation. Our music is It Is Coming by Alex Mason, used for free on a Creative Commons license. Unless someone zero laws us first, we'll see you again next time. Please like, rate, and review us, positively only, on your favorite podcast app. Also, check out our website, starsendpodcast.com, where you'll find additional content and our updated list of social media accounts. Good night from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end. <laughs>